First John chapter 1, verse 5. I'm actually going to read through uh, chapter 2, verse 6. This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same ways as he walked. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to do something a little bit uh, different today. Because we've been talking through this issue of how do we kill our sin that is killing us. Theologically, it's called mortification. How do we put our sin to death? And the presumption often in this life is this, that sin is what gives us life and and Jesus just wants to somehow rob us of that. God wants to make us morose and he wants to make us sad and he wants to make sure that we're obedient. He doesn't want us to have fun and so keep away from these sins, these things. But as we've talked about these last several weeks, sin actually brings pain and suffering and holiness actually brings happiness. And so as we put our sin to death, you also live, that's mortification, vivification, you live life. You live the life that you were always intended to live because your sin is robbing you from life. And we've talked about how you kill your sin. We've talked about how you name it. Uh, We've talked about the flood of it. We've talked about how you trace it back to the desire, to the root of it, so you can see where the sin problem is. We've talked about all of those kind of things. But today, we've got to do the part that is the most arguably important part of the whole process, which is this. To, to kill your sin, you've got to spend an amazing amount of time looking at Jesus, enjoying who God is, focusing on him, So we're going to be a little bit more meditative, hopefully, a little bit more slow. I'm going to read you some of these quotes, read you some of these points. I've got six points, but they're all very easy. And I want you all to gaze and focus your eyes and your attention on who God is. Robert Murray McChain said it this way. He said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself or every look at your sin 
take ten looks at Christ. He's altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love. And repose, meaning relax, and repose in his almighty arms. Frank Laurenbach, I, uh, this is not my notes, it just popped into my mind. He said years ago that he tried to make his life a game of minutes. I'm going to try to see how many minutes a day I can focus my attention on who God is. But most of our minutes go to the news, don't they? Or talk radio or to social media, or to our calendars, or to our emails, or to any number of things. And then we wonder why we're anxious, and we wonder why we're so unnerved throughout the day. We hear the call of this is to look and to focus on Christ. In other words, Colossians chapter 3, to set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth, but to set your mind on the things that are above. And then in Colossians 3, when you read that this afternoon, You'll see after that, it says, now put to death these things. And put these things away from you. And now put on these things. In other words, what sanctification is and what we're trying to communicate in this time is growing in grace and growing in sanctification is like doing those old monkey bars on the playground. You let go of one in order to grab onto the other one. And so what God's trying to do is he's not trying to make you sad. He's saying, let go of greed so that you can grab onto generosity. But you're going to be between these two, double-minded, if you're trying to hold on to both of them. Let go of lust so that you can grab onto true intimacy. Let go of your self-righteousness so you can grab hold of Christ's self-sufficiency. Let, put these things off. Let go of these things so you can grab onto these things. And that's what we've been trying to communicate over this time. Now, no matter where you are in life, I'm sure this quote is applicable. Jerry Bridges said, Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of of God's grace. You're never beyond the reach of it, and you're also never beyond the need of it. So as we focus on these six things of who God is, I just want you to fix your eyes on him, to fix your attention, your focus on who God is, to bask in it, to revel in it, to enjoy again the mystery of the gospel that first of all, God is light. Look at what he says in verse 5 through 7. This is the message we've heard, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. When Jesus first declared these words, he declared them in John chapter 8. He had just spoken with an adulterous woman. All the people were divided. And then on the backside of that, there were a lot of self-righteous people that thought they had all figured out. And Jesus at that festival in John chapter 8 where they were lighting all the menorah candles. It was this service of light. He stood up at that moment, at the denouement of that moment, and said, I'm the light of the world. Why do you need light? You need it when you're scared, don't you? The other day, we have this, I have this uh, problem. I don't mean to be too vulnerable or autobiographical, but I have this. Um, Elizabeth and I were very strict on not having kids sleep with us when they were like toddlers, and you know we always like put them in the other room. We're like we're not getting involved with that. 
go to your room and cry it out. And then, uh, and then we got pets. And, and now we have pets, and she's not as firm on the pets not sleeping with us. So the other day, it was like a zoo. My wife was over there. I couldn't even, you know, get to her. And then we had two cats and a dog all on our bed. And the cats were already on our bed. I was dead asleep. It was like 2 in the morning. The dog jumped up on the bed, and all the animals ran over me to get off the bed. I thought, literally, I thought I was getting attacked by something. And I found my pillow on the other side of the room because the first thing I did was take my pillow and try to hit whatever was attacking me. And then the next thing I did was, because I don't have a gun beside my bed, was to reach for the light because I was scared. I, thought, I literally thought somebody was in our bedroom attacking me. When you're scared, the first thing you want is some kind of light to be able to see. And let's be honest, a lot of us are scared. A lot of us are frightful right now. A lot of us are worried. And you know what you need? You need the light of Christ. You need to look to him. You you need to let him guide your path. You need to let him show you your way. You need to let the light of scripture help you calm your heart. This light of Christ, it also is going to show our darkness I love that story of the miners, you know, those 33 Chilean miners who were caught down in the Chilean mine. And then Hugo, one of them, when he gets to the surface, out of the darkness, he finally gets to the light of the surface. And there is his wife and his mistress, who both came to mourn his possible death. The light exposed all of his duplicitous life. You know, when he was in the darkness, he could kind of keep it suppressed. But when he got out to the light, he realized, oh, you're both here. This is not going to go well. Light exposes us. And the light of Christ is going to expose us. But it also gives us fellowship. Look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from our sin. If we really walk in the light of Scripture, we're going to see things about each other. We're going to have to confront each other at times. We're going to have to have hard conversations with each other at times to say, hey, I think you're being really mean to me. You're you're really arrogant. You keep rolling your eyes at your wife when she talks in community group. You're being really greedy right now. I don't like that you said this to them. That's what light does. Light exposes it. We like to keep things suppressed and in the darkness. But the call of God being light is to bring those things to the surface so that we can actually have fellowship. So that the blood of Christ can actually cleanse us. And we can remember we're all in this together. I like what Brennan Manning says. He says, in the futile attempt to erase our past, we deprive the community of our healing gift. If we conceal our wounds out of fear and shame, our inner darkness can neither be illuminated or become a light for others. Because sometimes somebody says in your community group or your journey group, I did this before. And you say, you too? Or I had cancer, or my parents were abusive, or I'm on my second marriage, or whatever it is. We, we don't try to hide those things. We bring those out so that we can have fellowship and we can use that healing power with others because God's a God of light, and he also cleanses us with the blood of his son. Number two, God is truth. 
Now, the verses uh, 6, verse 8, verse 10, verse 4 of chapter 2, if you want to look at all of those, all of these talk about God being truth and not making him out to be a liar. Look at verse 6. If we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar. And his word is not in us. And then look at verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in us. Uh, We know that God doesn't lie. How do we make God a liar if he can't lie? How do we actually make him a liar? Well, here's how. We make him a liar if we say, I know God, but nothing changes. I I know God, but I'm not any more obedient than I was last year or 10 years ago. In other words, this is for you who are non-believers. I get the claim because it's your most valid point against Christianity. All the philosophical points, those are pretty easy to walk through. But the claim, I don't know if God can be truthful when all of these Christians are arrogant and selfish and greedy. That's a solid claim, unfortunately. Because that's what 1 John says. If you say you're a Christian, but you're not walking in the light, and you're not any more obedient to the commandments, you're actually making God out to be a liar. You're actually saying, yeah, God, he actually doesn't make that big of an effect in my life. Unfortunately, this quote is sometimes true by Catherine Whitehorn. She's a British journalist journalist, and she said, why do born-again Christians so often make you wish they'd never been born the first time? Right? The reason that resonated is because you all have that same feeling. And here, 1 John doesn't pull any punches. Look at verse 6. He says, look, you can't have affiliation without fellowship. Uh, in, In other words, you can't say, I'm a religious person and and say, look, I'm religious, but I hold that like a membership card in my pocket. And I'll pull it out when I get a discount at that business meeting. When I'm at the business meeting, we're about to close the deal, and everybody else goes to church, and we start talking about those things, you'll say, yeah, I go, I go to the church too. But when I'm at another business meeting, and it's not convenient, I keep that membership card stuck in my back pocket. I want affiliation with it when it's a discount for me but I'm going to distance myself from it. I, I go to church, but I don't really believe in this, that, or the other. Yeah, I go to church, but I go because my, my wife and my kids, they really want to be raised, and this world is really tough. We want to raise them in the church. I go to church, but I don't really believe in all this. I'm not that fanatical. We distance ourselves. We have affiliation without fellowship. Verse 6 and verse 8 and verse 10, we make God a liar when we say we have no sin. It's those other people that sin. Not me. I don't struggle with that as much as everybody else struggles with that. And we make a God a liar, verse 4 of chapter 2, when we don't keep his commands. The truth isn't in us. But God's a God of truth. Now, here's the good news. He knows everything about you already. So he, because he's a God of truth, he knows right now. He knows if you're faking it. He knows if you're in this room, but you actually don't want anything to do with this. He knows if you're here, but you're just waiting till you can get out so you can do whatever you want, and then you'll just play the game the next week. He knows all of that, and here's the deal. 
Amazingly, he still gives you grace and forgiveness. And that's why verse 9 is so important. He says, now look, all of that aside, you can make God a liar by not following him, by not being obedient to his commands. You turn God into a liar. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. First, we have to confess our sins one to another. That's James 5. And this practice... uh, there are so many things that the reformers threw out during the Reformation, and one of the things they threw out was a confession booth, which was appropriate because no man or woman can absolve another person's sin. But we did lose something because James 5 says, confess your sins one to another so that you might be healed. And I don't know when the last time you did that was. It's powerful. I did it Monday night. I did it last night, too. Uh, But Monday night, I was uh, with some guys in Florida, and I was trying to get this sermon prep done so I could work on a paper. And I read this text. And I said, I can't do any more preparation until I live what I'm preaching. So I gathered the group together and said, here's the deal, guys. I need to confess all the sins that are plaguing me right now and confess them all, they said, you're forgiven by the blood of Christ. I said, now I feel like I can work on this sermon. Now I feel like I can actually go back here. It was freeing. It wasn't condemning. It was freeing because of the blood of Christ. If we confess our sins one to another, it's so critical. Miroslav Volf, who did not have an easy life, said it this way, at the heart of the cross is Christ's stance of not letting the other remain an enemy and creating space in himself for the offender to come in. In other words, what the Christian should do is provide a home base for people who are struggling with sin. In more biblical terms, a city of refuge where at any point you can confess the gospel. This is amazing. Think about this in this culture that we live in. I'm making sure none of you are falling asleep uh, on me. Think about this in this culture that we live in. In this culture that we live in, Christianity creates creates a category that allows you to be wrong. And and even says you're going to be wrong and you're going to sin and that's okay. And Christianity creates this category where it says when you are wrong, when you are struggling, this is your home base. You come back to the cross. This is a place that you can come and you can ask forgiveness and you should get really good at it because you're going to be doing it your entire life. So go ahead and get good at this one discipline. Now what's our uh, confidence? Look at what it says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. I want you to see the confidence is in the character of Christ in being faithful and just to forgive you. It's not in you saying it right. It's not in you saying it with enough remorse that he might forgive you this time. It's not with you saying it so that you really mean it this time. No, no, no. The confidence that you have to come and confess your sins to others or confess your sins to Christ, the confidence is that Jesus himself is faithful and that Jesus himself is just to forgive you. That's your confidence. So let's just meditate 
uh, let's just marinate in this quote for a second from John Owen. I'm going to slow down, read it slowly. There is not the least encouragement to a sinner to deal with God without the discovery of forgiveness in him. In, in other words, what comfort would there possibly be to come to a God if that God didn't inherently have a character of forgiveness? For God is known in truth only in the forgiveness of sins. In this knowledge of God as the forgiver of sins, all knowledge of him is compounded. It is in the experience of God's pardon that man comes to know God's basic nature. That is, he's holy yet loving. He judges sin because he's righteous, but he forgives it because he's merciful. Which leads us to our next point. God is a light, God is truth, God is faithful, and God is our Father. Look how he turns, John turns in the second paragraph here to say, my little children, he puts it back into this uh, relational context. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, you, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. God is our Father. He's not an abstract pardoner. In other words, he's Abba. I'm flying back uh, from Florida on Friday. Uh, you know, I've got TSA pre-check and all that global entry, all that kind of stuff. But you still have to go to them, and, and you still have to put your scan your stuff and hand your license and pull down your mask and hear the beep and have them go, you're through. But it's just an abstract pardon. I mean, they don't know me. They don't know my struggles. All they see is that my face somewhat resembles that face and everything checks out behind the scenes with my, uh, you know, Social Security and all that kind of stuff. That all checks out. It's just an abstract pardon to get me from one place to another. But they don't know me. Your father knows you. Your father knows you and he pardons you. And you might not have had a good earthly father, but all of us long for a heavenly father that would know us and pardon us. That's why I love that story of the father who had become estranged from his son, and the son ran away, and he searched for him for months, and he couldn't find him. And then he finally put an ad in the paper in Madrid. And here's what the ad said. Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday, all is forgiven. I love you. I'll never quit loving you, your father. He showed up at noon on Saturday in front of the office. There's this hubba blub, a lot of people around, because several hundred young men named Paco showed up looking for forgiveness from their dads because they're longing for it, Right? They're longing to be forgiven. They're longing for a heavenly father to say, all is forgiven. Just come back to me. So I don't care how distant you are from the Lord right now. He's your heavenly father, little child. All is forgiven. Come back to him. Robert Frost said it this way. He said, home is that place when you go there, they have to take you in. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> But the prodigal God awaits. 
he awaits the prodigal son to come back. Then next to last, Christ is our advocate. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But then look at verse 2. He's a propitiation for all of our sins. Let me talk about propitiation first, and then I'll come back to the word advocate. Uh, propitiation means uh, he is... It's a complex term in Greek. They're playing into some Greek uh, context here. But basically it's saying he is the one who assuages the wrath of God with his sacrifice. That God had this righteous wrath towards us because of what we have done in rebelling against him. And here's what Christ does. He sacrifices in a way that assuages, that takes away the righteous wrath of God. He is, in other words, our propitiation. And you might say, if, I'm, if you're not a believer, you might say, well, it's not that bad. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that bad of a person. I mean, I'm better than them. I'm better than them. I, I live a pretty moral life. Oh, no, friends. <laughs> not at all. It is bad. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms And laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor is the only way out of the hole. It's not self-improvement. It's not trying to do better. The only way out of the hole is this process of surrender, this movement, full speed astern is repentance. To come back to Christ in repentance. And why can you do that confidently? Because, verse 1, you have an advocate. Somebody who works on your behalf. Now this word advocate, uh, we translate two words in the Greek, advocate, into the English. Uh, One is uh, kata angelo, and the other is parakleto. And so they're two slightly different words. But parakleto means a comforter, someone who would come alongside para and call you out, kaleto. They come alongside. So you can imagine somebody hurt, and they come alongside, and they, they put your arm under your ribcage, and they carry you out. They're your comforter. They're their advocate. That's what Christ does. When you're wounded, and when you're tired, and when you're weary, Christ wraps his arm around you and he says, come on. And then the other word means to proclaim. And so not only does he carry you, but he, your advocate, proclaims before the Father. So when sin says to you and to your heart, you're such a sinner, there's no way you can go back to God. You've messed up too far this time. Or when doubt or despair says, you're not a believer, you never have been. Or when sin weighs you down or somebody else weighs you down, you have an advocate in Christ who says, not on my watch. I died for this person. This is my brother. This is my sister. I brought them here to you, to the foot of the cross, our Father, because they are coming home. And I am their advocate and it doesn't care what sin says about them, what the world says about them, what evil says about them, what their mom, what their dad, what their grandparents, what their kids say about them, what their business says about them. I say that they're made right. I say that they're righteous. Gosh, that's why I love that scene in John chapter 12. Um, I just adore it. Where Mary, washing Jesus' feet, and Judas 
says, you should have saved that money for the poor. Some of the most evil people are often the most religious, aren't they? You should have saved that money for the poor. And you know what Jesus said? Leave her alone. I just love that one. Gosh, that gets me every time to, to hear Jesus say, get away from her. Leave her alone. She's mine. And what she's doing is good. You'll always have the poor. Focus on me. I'm your advocate. Lastly, God is love. Verses 5 and 6. And this is a way of transition from Christ being our advocate to us being an understanding God is a God of love. There's a great scene in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the white witch uh, is trying to destroy Edmund and points to Edmund, who's messed up horribly, and says to Aslan, you have a traitor there. You know, all the accusations all the accusations that the world will give. And Aslan responds, well, his offense wasn't against you. You remember remember when we started this sermon series, Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned? Because you and you only can forgive, that puts it in the right context, right? Aslan, well, his, his offense wasn't against you. Why are you upset? Why are you accusing him? His offense was against me, and I'm the one forgiving him. The story picks up with this. Edmund was on the other side of Aslan, looking at the time at Aslan's face. He felt a choking feeling and wondered if he ought to say something. I'm just about to try to defend myself. Say it wasn't that bad. Say I don't really sin that much, whatever it was. But he felt that he was not to do anything except to wait and to do what he was told. That's why it says verse 4 and 5. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar. The truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as which he walked. In other words, God is love. And because God is love, we look to his face and we do what we're told. Because we can trust him. He's a God of love. And his commands are not burdensome. It just fell out this way that I watched a documentary on Nazarene, uh, which is a city outside Portugal, which has 70 to 80 foot waves. And these big uh, wave surfers, uh, many of whom have died riding those waves. And they have, the waves are so big, they have to pull you out onto the wave with a jet ski. And then if you fall, they send in jet skis to get you because if you fall, you're dead unless you get a jet ski rescue. That's the gig. And the footage is unbelievable. But when those jet skis come up, they give you a certain amount of instructions of what you're supposed to do. Wrap your hand around this. I want you to grab onto this rope. Leave the board there. Those commands are not burdensome. Those are commands of rescue. Those are commands of if you want to abide with me, if you want to stay close to me, do these things. The commands of God are commands of love to keep you close to him. Not just to keep you from front. They're commands of love to make sure that you're abiding with him. That's why it says, again, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as which he walked. 
And so let me put this last quote up and we're done. Elise Fitzpatrick. Unless we're very intentional about meditating on these truths that show God's love, they will slip from our thoughts like misty dreams that evaporate in the morning light. That's why Luther said, take heed then to embrace the love and kindness of God and to daily exercise our faith therein, entertain no doubt of God's love and kindness. So musicians, go ahead and come up. Trevor, go ahead and come up. But I want to leave you with this. I want you to meditate. Now, with 30 seconds, stay with me. Don't transition. Don't start packing up. Stop. Stop, you sinners. Stop. (laughs) Stay with me just for a second. I'm going to read these six points. And you're going to ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in which one of these you need to meditate on this week. Which one of these you need to focus on and think about and gaze at this week? Ready? Here are the six. God is light. God is truth. God is faithful. God is our Father. God is our advocate. And God is love. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit.